You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is not November 24th, 2010, but this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Yo. Evan Bernstein. Good day, mates. And we oh, are being joined by a God. special guest, Richard Saunders. Richard, welcome back to the Skeptic Sky. Hi. <laughs> Richard, what's up? Hey. Hey. I did the Australian thing. You did the exactly. Yeah, well, the creepy thing. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. The creepy pedophile thing. No, Richard, remember, remember that time that we all came God. to Australia? And we, yeah, we it just seems together. like yesterday. Really. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Remember that kangaroo I punched in the face? Yeah. So, uh, Richard, uh, how were we? Well, so far you have been great. I mean, wow, the crowd that we pulled the other night at the Skeptics in the Pub where you guys showed up, uh, and we had to go back the next day to apologize about Jay, but, you know, that happens. Yeah, he doesn't normally – normally he has better bladder control than that. I'll like to apologize. I forgot to tell him about the strength of Australian beer, but he found out the hard way. Mm, we all did, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the show for November 24th of that week, although we're pre-recording it, as you could probably tell. <laughs> and this is the week that we will all be in Sydney for TAM Australia, which is why we invited our good friend Richard Saunders to come on. For the bulk of this show, I'm actually going to be using material that we have previously recorded. These are all segments that didn't make the, the final cut. They were eliminated for time, but nothing gets wasted. I put them aside, and now I'm going to put a lot of those different pieces together. So you will hear segments that we recorded over the last six months, and you may hear other guest rogues making appearances, appearances etc. But uh, we're still going to bracket the show with the normal introduction, and, and we're going to come back. Richard's going to join us at the end of the show for a special Australia-themed science or fiction. But first, Evan, tell us what is special about November 24th in skepticalness history. Well, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one thing in skepticalness that happened on November 24th in history. 1859, the book was published. Ah, Bible? I don't even have to say who, and uh, I don't even have to say what. I'd just like to point out that skepticalness isn't a word. <laughs> it's a perfectly cromulent word. Well, what was uh, it? The origin of species. Oh, oh, oh duh. Oh, come yes, on. Of course you all are. Right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Published. The origin, uh, yes. November 24th, 1859. Wasn't it on the origin of species, the original? Yes. Anyway. The, well... It was titled <laughs> The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. That really sums it up, doesn't it? It was a brilliant title. A book of note. He yes. had been, uh, Darwin had been prompted to publish it early, right? Earlier than he want, either wanted yeah, to of, or anticipated because... Because of Wallace. Wallace, Alfred, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was also a naturalist. He was um, approaching the same conclusions and about to publish mm. his results. What a scoop that would have been. Yeah, I know. Uh, definitely would have been. Also... Uh, November 24th is uh, universally known as Evolution Day because of the publication mm-hmm. ah. of The Origin ah, of Evolution Day. So Very happy nice. Evolution Day, everyone. <laughs> Go out and celebrate by evolving into something. Maybe a monkey. <laughs> throw off the creation. You know, in the mid-70s, there was a terrible cyclone 
um, that hit the city of Darwin here in Australia and devastated Darwin. I think it was 19, Christmas Day 1974. And there were lunatics at the time saying that was God's retribution for naming a city after this evil man. <laughs> oh, yeah, that yeah. really right. pissed God off. Yep. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I just love it when people assume that God is as stupid and, and petty as they are. Mm. <laughs> Richard, you sent us uh, this new YouTube video that uh, you recently put up on the Eken Power Band bracelet. Oh, and yeah. I've been having a, gr- a awesome. great... Uh, I don't know if fun is the right word. I, it's fun to a certain extent. But, you know, there's in the last year, there's been a, um explosion in, in this holographic technology, sports performance, health, blah, blah, blah technology. Basically, oh, yeah. you wear a, a, a hologram, which is mass-produced in China in various the styles and designs, on a uh, plastic or rubbery-type um, silicon wrist around your, your wrist, uh, wristband around your wrist, and it's supposed to give you all these amazing extra powers and benefits and all the rest of it. Well, I've long since known, and I think I even discussed last time I was on the show, that in order to sell these things, they do a demonstration which is, to be blunt, uh, fraudulent. It's a con. It's, a, it's an old trick. It's an old body trick, something like you might do in high school for fun or something like that. But... Uh, if you don't know it's a trick, then you can get hoodwinked, you can get conned. So I went along to a sex sexpo expo here in Sydney a few weeks ago to do some reports for the Skeptic Zone. Well, that was my excuse anyway. And I came across the <laughs> I came across the stand of someone selling or oh, the company called Eken, E-K-E-N, which is yet another one of these wristbands with magic holograms in them. And I put on my my reporter's sort of uh, disguise in, in a sense, and I said, oh, sh- tell me about it, show me, what what does it do? You get a lot further in this game if you simply ask questions, and people will tell you all sorts of things. So the guy told me how it works, apparently, and then he did the demonstration on me, which uh, we videoed. Now, it's clear, clear in the video what's going on and the tricks this guy is trying to do on me, but I play along with it. And the video then goes on to explain exactly how the tricks work. Um, if you want to see that video, the best thing to do is go to YouTube and just head for uh, my channel, which is one word, Skeptic Zone Podcast. Or you can Google Eken, E-K-E-N, and Saunders, and you'll find the same thing. But uh, also of note is worth mentioning that I've got a lot of mileage out of wearing these uh, things on my wrists, but not just one, because you see people wearing one and it doesn't really mean anything. But if you want to get people's attention, wear three on, mm-hmm. in, on, uh, and have them obvious. Now, what I've been doing, and a lot of people have been doing, we've been going to the website of Skeptic Bros, that's skeptic with B-R-O-S dot com. These are a couple of guys here in Australia who have made their own uh, bands called Placebo Bands. Yeah, and making no bones about it. This is this is the same, probably some from the same factory in China where most of these things come from. They look identical. They've got a they uh, has written on it placebo, the power of belief, and the hologram has got a, a P logo on it. But they sort of look more or less the same. So if you wear f- uh, four or five or three on your wrist and are multicolored, people will ask you. It, I, every day people ask me about it, which is the perfect opportunity for me to say, this is why I'm wearing them. Here's the demonstration. If you know anything about them, you've been fooled or you've been hoodwinked. And you give them one because they're only $2. Richard, I have a question um, about your your testing methods. Mm. Considering that you found these bands at the Sex Expo, are you certain that 
you're supposed to wear them on your wrist. <laughs> well, judging by the size, if I wore them somewhere else, I'd be extremely gifted, I think. <laughs> hey, Richard, I'd, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around the whole reason for a hologram. Why latch on to an idea of, of using a hologram on these? I mean, is it a real hologram if you look at it? Does it look like a hologram? Well, it's, it's big. Because it's it's still after all these years, and holograms have been around for I don't know what thirty years or or, or whatever the hell they've yeah. been around for. Yeah, they it's still gimmicky. look. It's gimmicky. They look groovy, yeah. and it's a great chance to uh, baffle people with science words like frequency or um, your, your body's core. natural center yeah. core, body's natural field. Uh, and to a lot of the population, their scientific knowledge just stops right there. And they've heard these words, and as uh, Dawkins likes to tell us, we've been evolved to uh, accept what people in authority tell us. That's the way humans' brains work. Uh, so if someone in authority, and they look like they know what they're talking about, tells you something which is beyond your scientific understanding, you're going to tend to probably more or less accept what they're telling you. Uh, but the hologram is a great gimmick for this sort of thing, and it's worked, dare I say, it's worked like a charm. The most famous example of this is a company called Power Balance, and yeah. they're just oh, yeah. raking in millions of dollars. But uh, just recently, selling the same thing. Magic amulets, basically. Ma yeah. Yeah, magic right. uh, magic uh, wristbands. Uh, they were recently awarded what we call in Australia a shonky award. Shonky so. meaning underhanded, dodgy, more or less a con, or doesn't function by the consumer group choice in independent tests. So... We do what we can, but the, but wearing wearing the fake ones, uh, getting attention, and then just giving them away because they're so cheap is a wonderful way I found in getting the message across. Now, Richard, watching the video, I mean, you're right. I mean, the guy, the way the guy pushes down in your arm that's the that's the trick. That's the deception yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. And, and basically, it, it seems like he's got to know what he's doing, right? Do you think he's deceiving himself too, or do you think he you knows, know he knows what the trick is? That's surprisingly a tough call to make. Looking at the video again, I think he probably knows damn well what he's doing, but I couldn't, you know, stand up in a court and say he knows what he's doing because yeah. people can deceive themselves and actually change the way their body m moves in order to oh, accomplish yeah. the, the desired effect. It's like the idea of motor action. Yeah. But l looking at it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a tough one to call, but it looks like he knows what he's doing to me. Yeah, but it still is subtle. After you filmed the whole thing, did you want to go back to him and say, all right, now that the, the filming is over, you're, you, you know what you're doing as a total con job, right? I mean, did you want to confront him at the end just to see what he would say? I've done that before at other uh, mind-body, what we call mind-body wallet things, you know, New yeah. Age festivals, <laughs> and it's a short conversation. They either look at you blankly or they tell you basically to, to get lost or to bugger off, uh, to, yeah, bugger off uh, as we say in Australia. Uh, and well, look, if they're, if they know what they're doing and they're out to make a quick buck doing a con, uh, they're not going to care what you say or they're going to tell you to bugger off, right? Because you're spoiling yeah. their act. If they sincerely believe in what they're doing, they're going to think you're crazy anyway because they yeah. know in their heart that's not what they're doing. So I've done it. I've been there. I've done it. I get more benefit out of playing dumb and letting them. Uh, and uh, asking them questions and hearing the crazy answers and, and well, filming it is, is a good thing to do. Richard, do you have any ideas on how to perform a similar test without any uh, subterfuge? I mean, what, how, could you, how could you perform a similar test in a, and make it a real test and not without any, without any bias, without any pulling, any, any 
you know, any direction. What, uh, well, you know, because because if they you, offer to do a test on you, you, I yeah. mean, you have to say, well, no, I don't want you to do that test on me because it's not that's not the way to do it. Let's try this test. How how could we do it? I, yeah, I was okay. thinking perhaps a weight, a weight like on a rope that you could put on your arm, and that that rope will go straight down. There's not going to go outward or inward, but it would have to be a heavy weight, and that might not really be practical. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm, try, I'm trying would, to think of another way. That, that, that might work. Standardized, you yeah. know, uh, force to, uh, at a specific distance and angle. Right. So, so That's that what it would have to be. And you you double yep. blind whether you have the power band in your hand or on your wrist or, or a lookalike placebo. It's and, it's doable. I'm I'm just trying to think how much how much weight would you really need to put. To make someone go off balance, off balance you have to go yeah. off balance. That's a good that's, that's key. That, that that's a key part of it. And yet, there might be a lot of weight to do that. I'm not sure. It's worth. It might be worth trying. One of the ways that the Choice Magazine people did it in in proper double blind um, controlled tests was, well, one of the key claims of all these magic bands, be that Ekin or Power Balance or Bionic Band is another one, um, and there are various others, is balance, of course. So what Choice Magazine did was they had people wearing either the band or a dummy band, unknown which one they were wearing, and simply walk along a long balance beam to test their balance, independently of anybody touching them. And they found that regardless of what band they had on the dummy or the real one, their balance was more or less the same. So that's a good way to test it too. That's a real good way, yep. And for background, now, what, this is applied kinesiology. This is the same trick of applied kinesiology. You know, like you hold the substance you're supposed to be allergic to in your hand, and then you could fall off balance, and or they could break your arm. You know, they could they could they could move it down. It's it's basically the same the same gimmick, the physical gimmick. Except this one is, you know, with the the, the wonky product. Hmm. It's and there's a you know Evan, you remember that guy that, is, that we Evan and I had an encounter with a guy who had a whole catalog of dubious products and they were all sold with some tricky little demonstration. It was the same basic thing over and over again, like how far can you twist at the waist, or you know all different kinds of things that you can manipulate a little bit and to but to try to make a a compelling demonstration for the unwary so that they'll think that this magical product actually works. Remember his magnetic balls that he was moving around? It was it was really... Oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Was this at the same sex expo? That <laughs> no. That <was> <laughs> <laughs> he also had... He had that scarf with the infrared fibers woven into it. Ooh. Infrared what does that fibers? mean? I don't know. <laughs> what what that? You, always, when you try to dissect it scientifically. What does that mean? Richard, so this power, the, the, uh, I don't know what the generic term is for these bands oh, that people wear. Oh, power bands <laughs> is a pretty generic term. Holographic technology, something like that. So these holographic, technologically advanced power bands that people wear, <laughs> yeah. the, the, they're so popular and, and there's so much money in it that a second company has actually you know, opened up to sell them, right? Oh, right, there are at least, I think there are about eight, to my knowledge. People, uh, there's a, a, a one. And this is this is where it starts to get um, more serious. Uh, I have bought one from a pharmacy called the Hot Band, which is yet another knockoff. Which is um, uh, well, it's cheaper. Hey, the the power balance one in this country costs uh, sixty dollars. Now at the what? moment, uh, the U.S. and Australian but the, but dollar that's only are, like are $10 one to one. U.S. No, the Australian dollar and the U.S. dollar are one to one at the moment. Oh, wow. So there you go. But the hot band, well, what a bargain. It only cost $40. But the sad thing was I bought it from a pharmacy, which is just outrageous. Wow. That's really sad. 
But I thought that if these things worked, if these th- all these things worked at claims, uh, as claimed, you would expect to see the following headlines in the world paper. Inventor of holographic band awarded Nobel Prize in both physics and medicine. That hasn't mm-hmm. happened yet. Or police on alert as holographic bands help drunk drivers to cheat roadside sobriety tests <laughs> by improving their balance. <laughs> that should happen. Jim, gymnasts. How about gymnasts being disqualified mm-hmm. for wearing Yeah, the, the Olympics the should ban them. Well, this is it. Holographic bands proven to work. Hundreds of athletes stripped of medals for cheating. Well, this is because Big Pharma is keeping this information down. (laughs) Big Pharma doesn't want you to know about this. So this this fight goes on. It gets serious. Well, I mean, it's a a rip-off to start with. So it's consumer affairs. It's also serious because we've got people, uh, cases of people in this country at least, buying these things to in a hope that they'll improve their migraines or other health issues. This is getting yeah, really hard. Yeah. What's the harm, though, Richard, really? Ah, what's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's the harm? There you go. Hey, Richard, I have a question about the video. Mm. Uh, where did you get that that unbelievably attractive T-shirt that you're wearing in that video? <laughs> I mean, that, that is something else right there. <laughs> you know, I, 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 it occurred to me later on that I'm running around asking these people and they're doing these tests on me and I'm wearing a big Skeptic's Guide to the Universe t-shirt. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> noticed that it was funny. <laughs> no one noticed. That's good to know. Good yeah. to know. No one right. noticed. Well, you know, that's it. No one's noticed the, the t-shirt. <laughs> so you are, guys. I do wear the t-shirt around. How about that? There's video evidence. Video evidence. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. So Richard's going to join us again at the end of the episode for a special science or fiction. Now let's go on to the rest of the show. One more question. This one comes from Michael Fincher from Ontario, Canada. Eh? Is he the director of uh, That's David Network? Fincher. Sorry. Is that David? And, and Michael yeah. writes, while perusing <laughs> the articles on crack.com, I came across this article. It sounds like a complete load of bull to me. What do you make of it? Uh, and he also gives another uh, report from a link to a New York Times article on the same story. Dakota teenager recovers after being frozen stiff. Really? And he writes, thanks and keep up the excellent work. So I read the article in the New York Times and oh was thoroughly published disgusted. January, published January 3rd, 1981. But yeah, it, this is <laughs> we often get these where it's sort of an old, an old news item. But this is, this is the New York Times. Right, I mean, even actually back in 1981, that's when they actually had science reporters. Yeah, the old gray lady. Remember that? <laughs> science right now. The, these stories crop up every now and then. The person come back to life. Mm. The, the, and it's usually somebody made a mistake somewhere. Uh, or it's just a physician who is not experienced talking with the press and says really uh, – unfortunate things you know the the things that are just meant for to be taken out of context by a reporter so in this story and again yeah this is from 1981 so there's like no way to do follow-up on it now but um the doctor is quoted as saying i can't explain why she's alive she was frozen stiff literally it's a miracle gotta throw in the miracle comment there so so this is a story of a girl that was um stuck in a car at night and on december 20th and uh, tried to get out and make it to someone's home that she knew. Apparently, she got within 15 feet of their door when she collapsed. And then, then the person found her at 7 o'clock the next morning. So she was basically out in the snow all night. What's interesting is that you know the, the person who found her d- described her body as being stiff. He had to actually like wedge her into the car diagonally, he says. 
the doctor reports that she was frozen too solid to penetrate the skin. So you're given the impression here of somebody who's literally frozen solid. And he said it was like a meat. I mean, it was like a hunk of meat that was frozen and she had like to be quote. sickle. Yeah, she had a to be quote unquote thawed. The thawing out process. Did uh, they use the uh, microwave? Sometimes they use the microwave to thaw things yeah. out. <laughs> 1981. <laughs> they had microwaves bulky. back then. I know. They were big, big enough big to fit a bulky. body back then. <laughs> exactly. So Sorry, cl- Steve. <laughs> the, reading this story, you would get the impression of somebody frozen solid who miraculously came back to life once they thawed her out. Like that movie about the icicle man, right? You guys remember that? Yeah. Encino Man? Encino Man. Polly Shore? No, I was thinking of the other one. Unfrozen Maybe. Caveman Lawyer? Unfro- yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand so your airplanes. Here. The other other one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they unfreeze us Neander, Neanderthal. But in fact, the only piece of actual information that might be useful to, to assess this story is towards the end, where they say that her body temperature was eighty-eight degrees. Okay, that's cool. That's cold. That's somebody who would be yeah. unconscious because your core, yeah, if your they're core hypothermic. But eighty-eight is not frozen. Right. 88 is when you go back in time, actually. <laughs> 88's Maybe, downright balmy. Was she kind of frumpy looking? <laughs> yeah, I mean, at 88 degrees, Steve, would there be any stiffening whatsoever? So I was thinking about that. So the, the stiffening was not because she was frozen, obviously. But certainly the muscles would stiffen right up. So not rigor. Pro- not rigor, but it's just, you know, well, it's, it's just not rigor mortis. It's rigor from being cold. But the muscles, yeah, we would just have been all contracted, you know, because of the, of the cold. And her skin was probably very cold. Obviously, that would have cooled off first. And, she, you know, it sounds like she had some frostbite. But so this is just, this is actually a not very unusual case of somebody who you know, has a severe case of hypothermia, was warmed. I wouldn't use the word thawed. I would use the word warmed. She's otherwise a young, healthy girl, and she did fine. She did maybe better than the average person in that situation. Did she go to high school and learn how to surf? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, the, but the New York Times reporter turned this into, a, you know, a story of a miraculous coming back from being frozen. Reading this report, you get a the completely wrong idea of what actually happened. We're going to do just one email today. This one comes from Juri Drio from Slovenia. You just made that name up. From Slovenia. And he writes, I'm sure this bit of news will interest you guys, not because it offers any immediate and practical benefits. Those are probably years away at best. But because of how it shows, we can never, ever predict where new and fundamental insights will come from. Cockroach brains may aid in fighting MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant staph aureus. Jay, I know you saw this item and were interested in it. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. I mean, this is an example of scientists doing some research on an insect. You know, we'd never think, oh, we're going to find something significant in the brain that, that may help the health of humans, you know, or may may have some type of significant medicinal effect on anyone. But this happens all the time, that scientists are looking for something and they find something else and the application of that something else could be profound. Mm-hmm. It also reminds me of, what was it last year, two years ago, when Sarah Palin was saying how ridiculous it is that um, the government is spending X number of millions of dollars on researching um, 
Fruit flies. Fr- on fruit flies, fruit yeah. Flies. Oh, yeah. And, and little did she know at the time that fruit flies wow. help tremendously in our understanding of modern evolution and, you know... Well, they're she, the cornerstone of our of basic science research in genetics. She missed the briefing right, right? on I mean, that, I think. Apparently, yeah. That's a, that's a slightly different issue. That was just her not being aware that of how basic science works. That often we have a model or or you know an animal that we understand really well, and that is a, a good representation or a, a good thing to study for one particular question. Fruit flies and genetics, right? That's again the cor- a, a one of the significant cornerstones of basic science genetic research. She just wasn't aware of that. This is a slightly different point. This is the fact that yeah, you know, basic science research doesn't necessarily always have some immediate and obvious application, but you never know when you're going to hit upon something that just happens to be incredibly useful. So, so you know, to some extent, we should be putting our resources into scientists just answering questions that interest them and not worrying about what the applications are. And, you know, useful applications will spin out of that. Uh, right. Just that's just the nature of scientific research. This yes. is a great example of it. Serendipity plays a plays a huge role. And, and Jay, just a little extra bit there. I mean, they just didn't find you know these antibiotics in the cockroach brain. I mean, these were antibiotics for bacteria that are really really resistant. I mean, and I yeah. guess like M- MR- MRSA. And that's where M- yeah. MRSA comes in. But this is this is some nasty bugs that that this could help with. Mm-hmm. Well, I had to leave something for you to say, Bob. And, then, and also, I'll also add, these are bacterial-cidal antibiotics. Yeah, some Cidal. antibiotics are just bac- they're bacteriostatic. They just keep the bacteria from reproducing, and then your immune right. system has to actually kill them. This has a 90% kill rate, which is actually very wow. bacterial-cidal. So these could be a very useful. These could be very useful. And, I, and also this week, there's several news items you know, talking about the fact that more and more uh, multi- uh, uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria are cropping up in hospitals and in communities. You know, this is a real serious problem. So n- new avenues of antibiotics are desperately needed. Very cool. One more email. This one comes from James Wayne from Orlando, Florida, and he writes, Monty Hall again. Hey, guys, I love the show. You've discussed the Monty Hall problem in depth on the show before. Now I would like to hear your thoughts on the show, Deal or No Deal. What's the best strategy for this game, and how does the show possibly try to trick you with its statistics? Are you guys familiar with this game? Yeah, I've, watched a, couple, I've watched a couple of them. Just people acting goofy, real goofy. It's, <laughs> but it's, 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 you know, it's no goofier than uh, Monty Hall show was. Yeah, remember they used, right. to be, they used to be dressed in costumes. Costumes, that's right. So this is a this is a game show hosted by Howie Mandel. At least in the United States, there's actually multiple versions <laughs> of the show in other countries as well. And essentially, there are a number of cases. What are there? Twenty five cases to start with, each with a, a, a denomination hidden inside, from like one dollar, then like five, ten, a hundred, all the way up to a million dollars. Whoa! And the contestant picks a case blindly. That's their case. And then they uh, reveal, they, they pick cases to, to reveal what's inside. So they might, they pick, I think they have to start by picking six cases, and that, and that will contain you know, random dollar amounts. Obviously, they want, to, they want to reveal cases with low dollar amounts because that eliminates them from the pool of what's remaining. It also means that the chance that their case uh, has a high dollar amount is increased, right? Mm-hmm. At each step of the way, after revealing a number of cases, more at first and then just one at a time later on, 
the banker will make them an offer for their case. So let's say a lot of low numbers are revealed early on, and therefore a lot of high dollar values are remaining as, a, as the, the possible amount in the case the contestant has. The banker may offer them a couple of hundred thousand dollars in exchange for their case, and then the contestant has to make a deal or no deal, right? If they make a no deal, then they, then they have to reveal more cases, and that could either increase or decrease the potential value of their case that they have remaining. Get it? It's, yeah. It's, it's, the few I've seen, it's all very, very depressing when, when the banker offers you know, <laughs> $300,000, and the guy's like, no deal, hits the button, no deal, wah, and then they, he, he opens up a few more cases, and he, and he gets rid of some big numbers, like a million or 750000 yeah. uh-huh. and then the banker comes back and says, all right, I'll 25. give you $500. $500. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, I should have I taken the deal. Right. It, it always does seem to get worse. And there's, there's actually reasons for that, but we'll get to that in a second. So there's actually two different versions of this show. In some of the foreign versions, the banker actually knows the value of the case that the contestant has. And therefore, the, num- the offers that the banker makes provide information to the, con- the contestant. Mm. Now, isn't it that fact, Steve, that makes it more similar to the Monty Hall uh, the Monty Hall problem, yeah, it, the fact it, that the banker has knowledge. It's not blind. It's not entirely blind. Yeah, but in the, in the U.S. version, it is blind. The banker doesn't know. Right. So, in the, right. so the question is, like, let's say if you get down to three cases and you open one case, should you take the deal or keep your case, generally speaking? But, so that could be like the Monty Hall problem, but only if the banker knows what the values right. are in the cases. In, right, because Monty Hall always knows, always knows where the goats are. So yeah, he's, right. there's no way he's going to, you know... And, and quickly for reveal. review, if you haven't heard us talk about it on the show, the Monty Hall problem is there are three doors, two have goats, one has a car, you pick a door, Monty Hall opens up a door with a goat, always opens up a door with a goat, and then the question is, should you keep the door you picked or switch to the remaining unopened door, and you should always switch because switch that gives you a two-thirds chance of winning instead of a one-third chance of winning. Um, and we'll go into the explanation for it. Just listen to previous episodes where we discuss it. So, but that's there. You're getting more information because Monty Hall knows where the car is, knows where the goats are. He will, he will open up a door with a goat, so that gives you information. So in the American version of Deal or No Deal, um, where the banker doesn't have any more information to give you, it, it really is not similar to the Monty Hall problem. But it is a very interesting statistical problem nonetheless. There's actually some – I found some various papers written about this game show. One, one of the authors of a paper wrote that if you wanted to design a game show in order to do economic research, you couldn't have you know, designed something better than Deal or No Deal. It seems, it seems ready-made for research. The reason why it's a, it's, a, it's a good source of research is because it puts people in a situation where – they are making high-risk decisions. Now, when, when experimenters are trying to see how people reason economically, they might give them a, a situation, and they have to offer them a real reward because if the subjects know it's in, that their decisions have no real-world consequences, then it's not a real test of what they would do. But if you say, like, you could actually walk away from the experiment with $100, depending on the, you know, the kind of decisions that you make during the experiment, then at least there is some 
uh, real incentive. But here with this game show, people really have a million dollars on the line. It's a real high stakes situation. And it's a fairly controlled situation as well. You know, even though it's a game show, it still is a, the design is perfectly well controlled for an experimental study. So what, you know, various researchers have done is go over the, uh, the behavior of, of the, the many contestants that have been on this show over the years. To, you know, it's an interesting data set. What one thing that they found that I found very interesting is that the show confirms two effects, one called the break even effect and the other called the house money effect, both of which do tend to motivate people to not make a deal, right? To keep playing. So in the break even effect, if you've lost money, then you tend to engage in riskier betting because you want to Recoup your losses. May recoup your losses, right? So you might go for like a, a higher bet at the blackjack table because you think that, oh, if I put down $1,000 and I win, I'll make all my lo- losses back in one bet. So you, you start to engage in riskier betting behavior. There's also the house money effect where if you've won, now you feel like you're playing with the house's money. So yep. you're... So you loose, also get you riskier. Yep. Yeah, it's like, hey, you know, I'm up two hundred dollars now. I could, I could be risky with this money because it's yeah, not mine. Right. It's, it's the house. You know, I'm basically playing with one money. That's funny. I have to fight not to do that when I yeah. play blackjack. Both of those, right? Are so powerful. It's, it's, I know that that's the, <laughs> the the psychological default. But the most rational behavior is to is to treat all money that you have as yours and as equal, not to separate out money as special in any way and and also uh, to make statistical bets regardless of your recent history you you shouldn't adjust your bets based upon your recent history each bet should be statistically optimal in and of itself so with deal or no deal you can actually calculate the the value of the case based upon the probability of of what's inside you can take the average monetary value of the remaining cases Right, and then and, and then, you know exactly what's remaining. There's no question what's yeah. remaining. and you know you you can do some quick math to say roughly what what, what the what the the average would be, and you could say, all right, this case is worth about that. Maybe this case is worth about eighty thousand well, dollars. You know, typically, I don't, I don't think a lot of people in the yeah, you know, on that stage yeah, can handle pressure, that, but right? that's it's beside pressure. the point. Yeah. And, and typically, the banker actually because they they know exactly what they're doing. They the offer that they make that is the actual value of the case. Based upon that mathematics, really? just yeah, they typically will offer the average value of the remaining cases. Interesting. However, they may actually uh, like if someone's just had it, suffered a huge loss, like the value of their case, like they open up the million dollar case uh, and then their value goes way down. The banker may offer them, make them a really good offer. They may offer them more than the average value of the case, and people and typically should take, should take it absolutely. But they, yeah. but they, but they're stuck in the break even effect. Mm-hmm. But so rather than taking a good offer, they go, no, I'm going to hold out for the, the 200,000 case that's still remaining there because that way I'm going to get back up to that high offer that I just lost. So they make irrational decisions, decisions because of these psychological effects. But with deal or no deal, I mean, the, the other thing is that even though there is um, the, sort of the average value of, of the case is, is, is what's being offered by the banker, there's also the median value, right? So you know, there may be more cases with low dollar values than there are with big dollar values, right? Uh, let's say like the million dollar cases left is, as well as the $1, $10, and $50, and $100 ones. Those are the five cases that are left. 
the average of that may be really a high amount, but you know, chances are pretty that you're going to get $100 or less. Chances are 80%. So you, you probably should take the $50,000 offer that you get. That you get. But pe- most people will get suckered in by the allure of the million dollars. It also depends on what your what your goals are, right? You may think that $50,000 isn't that valuable to you because it won't have that much of an impact on your life. Uh, so you might as well go for broke. Don't they have family helping them out as well? I mean, they do, they? but you know the thing is, every, in, I've watched the show a number of times, and, and you know, contestants are almost uniformly coached not to make a deal. It's not like they're getting any kind of useful feedback from the audience. The audience is just yelling jump, basically. They're just always yelling for them to do the risky thing and just to keep keep going. I'm sure that has an influence, though, as far as how it, it play, could. How it plays out. It could, a little peer pressure. So, Steve, do people t- typically fail during this process? Yeah, people typically make bad decisions. They, <laughs> they give up good offers uh, and end up getting a lot less money than, than, you know, if they were playing statistically... Most people should give up a lot earlier in the game than they do. When you get that high offer early on, statistically, you should take it. Chances are your, the offers are only going to decrease. What would be a high offer early on, like 5000 No, 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 no. Typically, unless you get really unlucky with the initial number of cases that you open up, if it's a random scatter of cases, you're typically going to get offers you know, around $100,000, $200,000 early on. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, if you did well, I'm maybe happy. maybe fifty thousand. If you did, if you you know, opened up some high number cases, but you you know, you if you if you decided to take an early offer, you you probably on average will walk away with around a hundred thousand dollars. But people hold out, you know, and then their their offers are almost guaranteed to drop after that, you know, unless they're they're holding the five hundred thousand or like the million dollar case, and they open up a lot of the the low monetary value cases. But statistically, that's just not likely to happen. All right. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, if you ever get on the show, keep that in mind. Yeah. The most interesting thing for me was the the psychological things that the break-even effect and house money effect makes people become more and more risky in their in their betting rather than betting purely on a uh, statistical basis. Let's do a quick name that logical fallacy uh, before we go on to science or fiction. Uh, this one comes from a question put forward by Brandon Putz from Edwardsville, Illinois. And Brandon writes, When commenting on a pseudoscientific claim, I will often hear skeptics say that if there were evidence for such a thing, for some reason the existence of the soul comes to mind, we'd have heard about it and it would be on the front page of every newspaper. While this rings true to me, it seems like a logical fallacy. Isn't it possible, however unlikely, that there is good scientific evidence for a phenomenon that has been overlooked by all of the major publications? Is this a logical fallacy? First of all, let's not confuse the front page of every newspaper with any publications. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you say publications, you know, presumably we're talking about scientific <laughs> journals, not USA Today. Right. So, because I don't think, like, I don't think I've ever said, like, <laughs> I've never said that. If you know, if this existed, it would be on the front page of the paper. Because I've seen a lot of ridiculous things on the front page of the paper. That um, that that is a good. Um, a good thing that he points out. Yeah. I just don't know. Did you identify it, Steve? Well, I don't think it's strictly speaking a logical fallacy because it depends on how yeah. you frame it. Like a lot of things, it, de- the, it depends on what the actual uh, structure of the logic is. If you're saying that something cannot be true unless it were widely publicized, 
that's a logical fallacy because there's an unstated major premise or you know a very strongly implied premise that any um, any significant such scientific discovery must come to the attention of the mainstream media. So the really comes down to is well, how good is that premise? Uh, but also you could state things in terms of likelihood. If you're saying it's unlikely that this is true, whether it's crop circles or you know alien writings or again the existence of life after death or whatever, you're saying, well, it's unlikely that such is the case without there being major scientific interest in it. For on the one hand, and major you know media interest in it on the other hand, that's not a logical fallacy. You're making a statement of probability, not absolutes, right? I agree. I think that we run into that quite a bit, actually, where people think that maybe they're dealing with a logical fallacy, but it, not if you state it just as a probability. Uh, you guys do that with science or fiction quite often. You say, oh, I haven't heard about this, and if this and were true, I probably would have, and that actually is a reasonable line of reasoning. Yeah, when we're talking about people who yeah. know, read a lot of science news and things like that, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like Occam's Razor. You know, Occam's Razor isn't an absolute statement either. It's just a statement that the, of multiple options, the one with the fewest new assumptions, more likely to be true. Not that it has right. to be true. If you treat it as it has to be true, that is a logical fallacy. It's a non sequitur. If you if you just say, well, it's you should at least it's more likely to be true. Therefore, you should consider or rule out the uh, the simpler options or the options with the fewest new assumptions before you settle upon a, a, a solution or a hypothesis that requires the introduction of a lot of new assumptions, that's that's perfectly reasonable logic. It's a rule of thumb. It's just not an absolute. Stay away from absolutes. Yeah. Yeah. Never absolute. use an absolute. Always. Or extremes. <laughs> well, we have another kind of fuzzy topic to talk about. Um, on a recent episode of the SGU, actually the last guest rogue that we had was uh, we had Pamela Gay and Fraser Kane on, and uh, this sparked a little bit of a controversy among the skeptical blogosphere. Uh, in that, you know, Pamela Gay is a Christian. She's a she's a scientist and a skeptic, but also you know still uh, holds to Christian belief. And on that episode, we. You know, some religious topics come up as they often do, just like they have on this episode. And a blogger named Seth, who writes a blog called Whiskey Before Breakfast, wrote a blog called Why Are We Lying to Pamela Gay? In which he argued that uh, the skeptical community is not really welcoming to those who have belief because we do mock and, and uh, criticize or ridicule religious belief. Therefore, um, we may pretend that skeptics who are religious are welcome within the skeptical community, but in fact, they're not. And he used our show as an example. And actually, I thought his example was really lame. This is what it is. Fraser Cain said, we were talking about junk DNA, right? And then actually, Fraser Cain started off saying, that's where the soul is. And I said something, I said, yeah, right. And he replied, so you remove all that, and the bacteria has no soul, to which I replied, a soulless bacteria. It was a really completely benign, very brief exchange. Certainly, there we've said a lot worse on this show. Damn. But uh, he thought that was being disrespectful to Pamela because she's a Christian and an example of skeptics not being honest about our attitudes towards the religious. And Pamela was fine with that, right? Pamela didn't have a... 
She's 100% fine with that. And she actually wrote that. Seth doesn't yeah. have, I think Seth yeah. doesn't have a clue. This is so typical, too. This is so typical of someone like saying, oh, this person was offended because blah, speaking for Pamela. And Pamela's totally yeah. cool with it. And she, you know, there is no doubt as to what your position is. You know, right. here at the SGU. Right. So if someone has some kind of real problem with it, they're going to either address it before you guys start talking or not come on the show. It's not like you've, you've got this hidden agenda that all of a sudden you sprung, you know, uh, on, on, on Pamela or on any kind of guest. I mean, anyone, you know, that's right. what's so great about, you know, when you watch, when you watch, uh, BS, uh, Penn and Teller, like they give everybody copies of the show. They say, this is exactly what we're about. And if you still want to come on the show, great. You know, that, that's something I, I have so little tolerance for is this kind of produced anger on behalf of mm-hmm. someone else who really doesn't care. You know, like, right. like how dare you talk for Pamela? Let's ask Pamela. Was she comfortable? Was she okay with it? Is it not a big deal? Is it a gentle ribbing? I mean, and of all the examples, that is such a – that's not even a ribbing. I mean, that's like a – that's like a, a, an, an aside of an aside, you know? There's yeah, such much a, to do about nothing. Yeah, there's such well, an indignation. Did offended? Did did he get offended? That's the the real question. I mean, Seth? I think it's it's pointless for him to speculate whether or not Pamela did. I think he actually got kind of tweaked. That what? That that you guys are being mean? No, I I think he's taking the other approach that that skeptics should just just come out and say, listen, all right, we're atheists, and and that's it. You know, I, I try to keep any kind of preconceptions I have about what it means. To, in other words, I have, I really try not to be prejudiced against people who have a faith and who also claim to be atheists. You know, there, there's a spectrum there, and I think there's tons of shades of gray. And I, I don't judge skeptics on whether or not they're an atheist or if they have faith or not. As a matter of fact, I almost don't care if they're doing good skeptical work. That's that matters to me more right. than anything else. That's been our attitude for 15 years, frankly, yeah. since we've since we started getting into skepticism. This is subject by subject, you know? Like, whatever you're talking about, you address that subject. And if you're, if you're dealing with someone who is skeptical in every part of their life except the subject you're dealing with, then you, then you address it there. You know, like, yeah. if the topic is, is, who knows what, conservative versus, versus liberal, you know, or, or some, some, some kind of a topic that people who self-label as skeptics can disagree, can disagree about. And there's a, there's a number of topics. Um, then you deal with those topics. But you're not going to sort of say... Oh, I'm lying to you because I'm not saying that you're not thinking clearly in on my terms 100% of the time. That's that's the opposite of what I think Seth wants. The whole point is to be civil and to somehow, you know, there's a time to be civil and a time to not be civil, but for the most part there's yeah. a time to be civil. Well, we do, you know, we do this show and we do the the things that we've been doing for the past 15 plus years to educate people to educate ourselves, you know, I, I, you know, I can't not mention that as well. This is a learning process for me, and I'm sure for everyone else. But, you know, I think it's important for us to to be as neutral as we can about people's beliefs, and we really say we're going to talk about science based issues. And if anything crisscrosses it, then fine, it's open game. But like, I, we're not here to discuss religion or if it's okay for people to b- have belief and everything. I, I really don't think that that's the point to skepticism at all. I think that education really is the only way. That we're going to really help people, and if we start nitpicking down, are we offending this person, or do we need to be like super honest with this other person that we, you know, we actually don't agree with your religion or whatever? Like, what are we doing? We're splitting hairs, and we're not really getting to the meat and to the the real point. I think. And do you know how often we get criticized by atheists for being too gentle, right, on people who have 
faith and religion. Sure. Uh, that, uh, that happens often. Well, we get it from both ends, which means we're, prob- we're probably striking a reasonable balance. And like we talked about Pat Boone's you know, blog on this show, and that certainly crosses over to you know, religious beliefs. But it was more his abuse of – but he was addressing he – was, he was abusing the history of science and making some rather illogical statements. So we, you know, we cover logic as well, not just pure empiricism. But there's got to be some connection. There's got to be some scientific issue or logical issue. And also we tend to make – we tend to focus in on the beliefs themselves, not the people who are making them, or on the people who are promoting them. If someone is you know, engaged in a public conversation – by writing a blog or whatever, then they're fair game, right? You're, you're, then you're saying, I'm putting my ideas out there, that you are making yourself fair game to be criticized. And, and that's what we're doing too, is we're, we're providing that criticism. And that's, that's totally appropriate. And uh, I agree with George that we make no bones about what our position is. But we also, I think, do go out of our way to, to be open to different political points of view, social points of view, um, and and religious points of view, I and I think I know I've said this many times before. I really don't care what people believe in their heart of hearts about the ultimate unanswerable questions of reality. Only thing I care about is that any scientific arguments are are factually based and logically based. If you know, if once people are if they're in the arena of science, then absolutely everything they say is fair game. If they say this is not scientific, but I want to you know reserve personal faith in a deity or whatever but I'm not offering any logic or evidence to support it. It's just a personal choice that I make. I don't see why I should waste one minute addressing that. Yeah, it, it depends on what you choose your goal to be, right? I, there are atheist organizations out there that want to improve the uh, the general conception of what it means to be an atheist, and I, I don't have a problem with that at all. Yeah. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a worthwhile movement, but I don't necessarily think we should be crisscrossing the streams you know, I, I just don't see us in that vein, and you know, yeah. we're not a religious hating group, and we're also not a an atheist pushing group. You know, like we're we are much more in the in the idea of education, like I said. And, we're pro science. Yeah, that's all. yeah. We're following our. We are have a mission statement, and we're following it. Yeah. Well, you don't you don't want to out outrightly hate religion, but when religion acts in a way that is counter to what you guys are presenting, then you have to say something about it. Yeah, and we do. And, the fact, I mean, yeah. and it's, the same, it's the same that if something from a science perspective is being presented the wrong way. The same way, you know, there's no religious, I mean, there's some, but, the, but the, the majority of the message behind the anti-vaxxing is not coming from a place of religion. It's coming from a place of misunderstanding how the science works. And you can be just as vehement against someone who's an anti-vaxxer and say, you know, you're wrong. What you're what you're espousing is wrong. In the same way that if you know someone says, uh, yeah, it's possible for a, a guy to walk on water or come back from the dead. Well, you're wrong also because you're using scientific terms. The fact that it's religiously based shouldn't really enter into it. It should be what is the claim? What yeah. is the claim? Yeah, George, being made? I would argue that they are identical conceptually. But you're right. And I view them the same way. You're right, George. The religion thing is a false dichotomy that I right. try to get away from over and over again. What matters is, the, is are you using ideology, any kind of ideology? could be a social, political, religious ideology. It doesn't matter. Even a pseudoscientific ideology to trump logic and evidence or, or good science. And that's something that we will address. Now, it certainly is often religious because religion is a very popular ideology in our culture. 
but there are non-religious ideologies. That's really what it's about. It's about the thought process. It's not about whether it's quote-unquote religion or not, but that gets so much undue attention. And I do think it really just distorts people's thinking about about it. As soon as people start to, to talk about what our approach to religion is, Oh, immediately they're wrong because we don't have an approach to religion. We have an approach right. to science and ideology and logic and empiricism. Right, critical thinking and yeah. the, the approach to, you know, what is the claim? What is that claim based in and is it right or is it wrong? And that's it. And anyone can make a claim. Anyone right. from any strata can make a claim. Well, the other, the other conversation that spins out of this, and this is what was the, most of the commenters to my blog about this focused on, was just the tactical point of view of if we're trying to expand the skeptical movement, do we need to be concerned about the tone that we take? And there what's interesting is everyone has an opinion, but nobody knows what they're talking about, <laughs> and, not, and not even us, because people say, oh, you need to be more polite if you want to – you don't know that. You don't know that politeness works better than ridicule or sarcasm. Yeah. Nobody has that for data. Pen, right? <laughs> and it, we all have anecdotes that su- can support any position you want to make. We get emails yeah, from people who were turned by the sarcasm. They said no it, magic bullet. It showed us how showed me how stupid it was. I mean, that yeah. works too. Sometimes. Depends on the situation. It's I mean, there are situations where yeah. you need to be sarcastic because it deserves it, and there are situations where you need to be very understanding and be able to say, yep. you know, okay, yeah. I, I get where you're coming from, and maybe this is maybe this is something you should consider, as opposed yeah. to don't be ridiculous. You know, it's like yeah. grow George, up, you, you know, yeah, context is everything. Yeah, we ha- yeah absolutely. Like we we have a goal in our show, and George, you have a goal for your show. You know, and you your tone matches right. your show, and our tone matches our show. You know, there are people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens out there that you know have a different take on this whole thing, and they they express themselves differently. Penn and Teller express themselves differently, right. but I don't I'm, I don't necessarily think all of our goals are a hundred percent aligned, and that's. I think that works. I mean, I love Christopher Hitchens. Sure. Man, that guy can come out punching like crazy. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure he offends a lot of people. He doesn't offend me, but he's he does have a goal and he's, you know, incredibly successful at obtaining his goal, right? We you know, I think what what Seth is confusing is the idea that you know, I think he thinks there would be a, a direct benefit from from realigning ourselves. Not just us, this SGU, but everyone. Yeah. Like you know, just take a different stance, and this whole thing is going to work. And I totally agree with you, Steve. I just think that's a preposterous. You're never going to get that. What what yeah. what historical movement has been 100 percent united? None of them. I mean, this like there is. Uh, I mean, you can take the any Third Reich, but it only lasted 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even that. How many how many times did they try to kill Hitler? You know, how about yeah, Nambla? a couple. I how about Nambla? Yeah, by the end, it was falling apart. Nambla, <laughs> Nambla. Oh, I don't know, Bob. How, how's that? They're very united. Uh, no, but George is right. I mean, I think I joked about the fact that there are two ALS organizations and they fight against each other. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> any, you know, any subject you have, there's going to be two websites yeah. that can't well, guys, stand each other. What's what's the natural response here? Wasn't there a, um, a South Park episode where but, the, two yeah. different, the two different atheist groups were, were right. fighting, duking it yeah, out? Of course. of course. That was hilarious. You know, I would actually argue, guys, if we really do <laughs> try to zoom out a little bit, especially over the past five or six years, the skeptical movement does get along. 
Yeah, the organizations do get along. I mean, you know, I can. But it's a family for the most part. It's like you know, you you argue with your sister or your brother, but when you're like when you're out and you run into another family, then you know, oh, don't mess with her. It's my sister. Like I'm allowed to make fun of her, but you know, you can't make fun of her. That's my sister or my wife or my brother or my dad or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah, we're gonna have. It's like you know, uh, yes fans. Yes fans are the most horribly divisive people (laughs) you could possibly imagine. That each album has its own clan. That will that will <laughs> yeah. grip onto its album with full vigor and 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 passion, and yet yep. they can all say, "Oh no, I love yes." You know, Close it's the, the same edge. thing. That's it's all it's all sub subgroups of subgroups of subgroups. That great emo Phillips routine. You you've probably heard this thing where you know he meets a guy and everything about the him matches. Yes. It's like, oh, I'm from here. I'm from here. This same church, the same thing. And then the, I, I'm doing it no justice. But the last little thing is that there's a slight difference in their religious belief. So he pushes the guy off the bridge. It's a horrible yeah. summation of that great <laughs> right. joke. But it, that's what it's all about. I mean, it is a every great group has that. So guys, there's an obvious question here. Yeah. that I'd like to hear you guys comment on. Should we separate the humanist-atheist movement from skepticism? Should there be a separation? Well, they are, they are separate in that you know, they are distinct. And uh, even PZ you know, then correctly points out that there, is, there are you know, divisions of labor that are, that are uh, appropriate and tactically appropriate. You know, not everybody should be doing everything. We specialize you know, we, we care more about promoting science, so that's what we specialize in, you know, and that's perfectly fine. But there's also, there is this natural tendency, the natural history of organizations, of movements, is to fracture along yeah. ideological grounds. I and thought we were the popular front. We're the people's yeah. front. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. So that's, what, that's why there are Splitters. so many denominations of denominations of, uh, of religions as well. It's the same thing. You get one little ideological fracture and boom, you got two different you know, denominations. But, but I declare, Steve, that we are the new skeptics. <laughs> well, that's what happens. The new neo-skeptics. Neo-skeptics. So it'll be interesting to see if we, how long we can keep it together as sort of a, a, this multifaceted movement, just tolerating the fact that we have multiple approaches and I think so Steve are you saying in 10 years Richard Saunders and George are going to get into a fist fight if anybody could keep these fractures together if anyone could do it and I've argued this before in terms of like you know you don't want to be brainwashed by anyone but if you're going to be brainwashed by someone be brainwashed by a skeptic who tells you to think for yourself you know what I mean like if you're yeah. gonna yeah. if you're gonna have a movement which is going to be naturally fractured maybe maybe the thing that that could provide some success or could provide some unified uh, a cohesion is the fact that we recognize that groups tend to fracture and that's yeah. going to happen, but we're still on the same team, and we're still we're still rowing the same boat. We might have we different still have common oars. enemies. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, even that is you know because that yeah. What's the enemy? You know, some will say religion, some will say non-critical thinking, some will say you know old people, some will say whatever you know <laughs> the frame, brown. whatever yeah. it is you know. But the thing is, is yeah. that we're all you know like we're, we're rowing we're rowing the same Viking ship. We might have different oars, and our oars might be efficient in different ways or for different kinds of ocean for seas you know choppy yeah. choppy water has this kind of an oar Ooh. i'm going to really push this metaphor as far <laughs> yeah. as i possibly can but but in the end of the day we all have horns on our hat you know what i mean like that's what we should focus um. on and we're all pushing the george uh. there's one thing we all agree on and that oprah has got to go <laughs> 
Well, See, but even <laughs> Oprah, in, in a certain, there are certain things that Oprah does which is very successful, and I, I think is should be encouraged. There's a lot that she does which is not so successful and should be discouraged. But again, we we. <laughs> We, if we have if we have one thing within this movement which can which can define us and unify us is that we never will be completely dogmatic and there's right. always a part right. where we can say hmm I never thought of it that way I never thought of it that yeah. way yeah. that's interesting maybe you have a point maybe you have a little bit of a point maybe not but maybe you do and I think that is that is our unifying strength is that if you're an atheist if you're an, a, a non-operist if you're a if you're a skeptic if you're whatever the core belief that you have that at one point you go hmm okay let me think about this for a second and not just go no it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong or this is what we believe you know uh, uh, point a point a point a we as a group uh, <laughs> can say Hmm, maybe there's something to point B. Is there something to point B? And maybe, there, and maybe there isn't. But at least we can sort of do that and not be dogmatic. And we don't have a dogma. That's you know, even though every everyone who's against us says that we are just as dogmatic, let's prove them wrong and show no, we are yeah. not. That is our strength. The same way science has this strength of not being dogmatic, and anything can be proven wrong if it's done correctly. Anything can be proven wrong. That is what our, our unifying strength should be, and we should revel in that. And I think for the most part we do because you can yeah, say I, I love Christopher I totally Hitchens, agree you know? George I love yeah we, I mean there, there is a, we're a large group of people now and I gotta tell you that I think that we have the most changeable minds out there yeah yeah, that's no, I agree. I think we are well. We, we may be unique in as a movement in that we really are a movement that that uh, strives to be individual. You know, Michael right. Shermer always jokes about leading skeptics as like herding cats. Herding cats, and yeah. we take pride sort of in the fact that we are, you know, not unified almost. Right. And and also, I agree with with George that it's about a process, not a set of beliefs. Right. And that process it builds in the notion of change. So I think the the one thing that it comes down to. So that that's all a tremendous part of our strength. But the one thing where I where I've in this latest episode where I see most of the the fighting, if you will, uh, is on style because that's the one thing that's personal, that's almost evidence free, yeah. and everyone thinks they have the answer. Right. And and if we could just make break through that last icon, if you will, that last barrier, say no, nobody, we have a, everyone has their own style, and it's all good, and just be yeah. okay with that. Be okay with the fact that different people have different styles than you, and since we don't know what works, it's okay for us to experiment with all these different different approaches Definitely. to promoting critical thinking. PZ made that point. I made that point. I think if we can keep hitting that point home. You know, against the people like Thess, who, like Seth, who were trying to say there's one true way to do this, and it's my way. You know, then I think we'll be stronger still as a movement. It's time for science or fiction. Each week we come up with three news items or facts, two real and one fake, and we challenge our panel of skeptics to sniff out which one is fake. But this week, this week we actually have four news items, and they're Australian-themed. And I'm going to see yeah, if I can stump, stump everybody, including Steve Novella. So this is going to be very interesting. Are we ready? Including Steve. Including Steve. Yes. Especially Steve. It shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> yes. I suck at this game. Let's yes. Go. All right. I'll, I'll, let me read them sucks. out to you first. Number one. Number one. Although mainstream professional television was launched in Australia in 1956, 
It was not until 1975 that Australian TV networks switched from broadcasting in black and white to colour. That's one. Number two, the Sydney Funnel Web Spider has been responsible for more deaths in Australia in the past 100 years than deaths from hammerhead shark attacks worldwide in the same time. Number three, when European explorers first saw the strange hopping animals, they asked the local Aboriginals what they were called. They replied, kangaroo, meaning I don't understand your question in the local language. The explorers <laughs> thought this was the animal's name and hence we call them now kangaroos. And number four, cricket is a great summer sport of Australia. What is interesting is that officially the fastest cricket ball ever bowled is within one mile per hour of the fastest baseball ever pitched, even though the fast bowler in cricket gets a full run-up when he delivers the ball. All right, so there are a few interesting science or fiction. Wow. Who's going to start? Excellent. Steve? You, you know, you can decide, I just Richard? say, Richard, it's, mm. not that, it's not that I don't care about Australia <laughs> no one does. <laughs> what? I'm just what? saying. I'm just setting it up for like what? <laughs> cricket? <laughs> you asked the question about cricket. It's got baseball in there too. I thought I'd make you feel a bit better about it. You know. Uh, I love it. Uh, I love it. Uh, you want me to go I, first? Mm. Yes. Okay. I, I would. I would love to believe that Australia didn't get color TV by 1975. I mean, that kind of fits. The, the the typical bias we have that Australia is running behind. Those dates don't seem crazy to me. They seem reasonable, but I, I don't know. I'm a little suspicious of that one. The the funnel web spider killing more people. Uh, yeah, I'm very prepared to believe that. Not a lot of people die from shark attacks. That's a, a very dramatic uh, thing that people are afraid of because of Jaws, etc. But it's, it's always easy to come up with something that kills more people than shark attacks. Uh, so I believe that. I don't. I'm not familiar actually with the funnel web spider. I guess I wonder if they're actually venomous. If that's a non-venomous spider, then that could be the trick there. It would be nice to know that. The kangaroo story sounds vaguely familiar to me. I, I totally believe that. So I think I'm, I'm going to buy that one. And also the cricket one, I have no idea. But I don't think that doing the run-up gives you an advantage in terms of how fast you can throw the ball. So it seems plausible to me that the fastest cricket ball and baseball would be roughly roughly the same. But do they throw it the same in cricket? I, I, admit, I admit to like almost complete and total ignorance of the game of cricket. Who knows? Is it, it's so underhanded. No, I can Is tell, it underhanded? No, no, it's, it's not. The, the fast bowler in cricket... We'll, we'll go back uh, uh, 10, 20 meters and run as fast as he can, stop it, uh, and then do a big cartwheel and fling the ball down at the, uh, to the other <laughs> end. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah it, really. Just throw yeah. it as fast as they can throw it. Yeah. Yep. Meters. <laughs> yeah. I don't think cartwheel means the same thing in Australia. As well, I mean, you have to visualize it. <laughs> Anyway, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen. I video. think if they did a cartwheel, I'd watch cricket. Okay. <laughs> what uh, What's your so call I, then, Steve? Officially. So I think for me, it's between the television one and the funnel spider one. Is it you know? Did you is did you delay the dates to try to play into our biases, or is the funnel web spider not venomous? Even though Australia has like the most number of venomous animals of every type <laughs> in the world. Uh, so I'm going to say the television one is the fiction. All right, you're going for the television one as fiction. All right, let's go to Jay. 
All right, so the first one about tel- uh, color TV not coming to Australia until 1975. I, I find that hard to believe, too. Um, I'm trying to think. I think color TV came to the United States. Uh, I mean, are you saying, Richard, that it came to the United States in 56? Uh, no, Australia, uh, uh, television was officially launched in Australia in 1956, mainstream television. Like network television. Yeah, it was first broadcast in 56. Yeah, I, I agree with Steve on that one. I think that that might be a little too late in the game. So I, I'm going to say that that one's true. The Sydney Funnel Web Spider, I mean, I happen to know um, that the Funnel Web Spider is is amazingly dangerous. If I'm remembering correctly, I think some kid died or somebody died within 15 minutes of getting bitten by one of them. And I'm and I'm telling you this because, yes, <laughs> about a month ago I started studying the dangerous animals in Australia. <laughs> Um, so I do know. Sorry, Steve, uh, your 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 guess was a little wrong there. The funnel is, web spider is incredibly dangerous. I just don't know if it kills that many people. No, a that's year. what I said, Jay. That's what I ultimately decided. No, you were questioning whether or not it was venomous. Well, yeah, you didn't know. But then boys, I decided boys, that it was boys. Okay, boys. All right. <laughs> don't fight. Yeah, mates, mates. But so, but but Richard's uh, the, the number two uh, item that Richard talked about with the with the funnel web spider. Um, he said that over the past hundred years, more people have been killed by the funnel web spider than by hammerhead sharks. And the reason why I typically think any land-born animal is more dangerous than a sea-born animal because people spend predominantly most of their time on the land. So I, I would tend to agree with this one as well. Uh, the, the, the third one about the European explorers first saw the uh, kangaroo, and that was uh, they didn't understand what the Aborigines were saying, and the Aborigines were actually saying, "That's we don't know what you're talking about." That is a uh, that's funny as hell, and I, I really hope that that's true, just because it's a great story. Mm-hmm. But I'm suspecting, though, that this might be uh, folklore for some reason. I don't have any knowledge of this. I'm just thinking about what's actually being said here, and it seems a little too funny and too uh, set up in a way. And then the last one uh, about the cricket game and about the cricket pitches not being faster than baseball pitches, even with the run up. That would make sense to me because. I know that when they throw a baseball that they put one hell of a spin on it, and I think that may actually help it aerodynamically. And I'm not so sure they could put the same amount of spin on a cricket ball. Um, and I've never played cricket, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with that one. So I'm going to say that the one about the kangaroos is the fake. Okay. Rightio. Let's move on to Rebecca. Okay. Yeah, I don't know anything about TV in Australia. Not a thing. No clue. Um... <laughs> So let's just set that aside for now. I do believe that the funnel web spider is responsible for more deaths. As has been mentioned, sharks don't really kill that many people, and particularly hammerhead sharks. That's I believe that would be quite rare. As for cricket, yeah, I don't know anything I don't know anything about cricket. Um except for that I don't think they use gloves. That's the only thing that really <laughs> impresses me at all about cricket is they don't have mitts. So that brings us to the origins of the word kangaroo. Uh, the idea that kangaroo means I don't understand is a very common uh, perception about the word, and it's one that I believed for a long time. However, I, you know, I could be wrong, but I'm fairly certain that was debunked by linguists long ago. Um, I. I for some reason, that's kind of sticking in my mind as being one of those just-so stories that uh, just isn't true. So I'm going with 
kangaroo as the false item. Okay. Yay. Let's uh, try Evan. I love this science or fiction. Can I just <laughs> say that up front? I think this one's great. We've got all kinds of animals here. We've got spiders, <laughs> sharks. Crickets. We, we've got, yes, crickets. <laughs> we, they're, all, they're all here. That's wonderful. Actually, Dr. Rachie asked me to make sure I put in sharks to scare Brian Dunning into this week's show. There you go. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> oh, he doesn't like sharks, huh? I don't think so. Yeah, what kind of asshole doesn't like sharks? Yeah, he's like, <laughs> what kind of pussy? <laughs> I mean, honestly, who's afraid of sharks and like tornadoes and crap? Yeah. <laughs> um, the only thing I know about us, well, I think I know about Australian television. Uh, didn't David Frost do his one of his shows based in Australia? Yeah, I think he did many years ago. Yeah, I, th- I think he did. So I'm trying to get a picture of. About what year that was, and was that in color or was that in black and white? It's about my only frame of reference. I'm not. Uh, I, I really, I'd be, a, I think, a fool to make a judgment based on that, though. Um, but I'm not surprised. Uh, color TV in America, I think, was 1961, 62, maybe. So about 10 years behind. That's about right. Maybe Ooh. for Australia. I'm just saying. <laughs> not, not, un- we've, not unlike other We've all seen though. your hairstyles, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> all uh, the funnel web spider. Um, I, I, I happen to know a little something about uh, shark, uh, death by shark, because not too long ago I was researching, I don't remember if it was for a blog post or something on the Skeptic's Guide, uh, having to do with shark attacks. And I seem to recall, like over the last 10 years, it's roughly 80 80 or 90 fatalities a year uh, by shark attacks total. Not just, but hammerhead sharks included amongst those. Um, so I think the number of deaths from hammerhead sharks over the 100 years, if I extrapolate that out, is relatively low. And therefore, I think the funnel web spider deaths uh, could definitely be responsible uh, for more deaths than the hammerheads. Kind of like along the same lines as uh, bees. You know, people get stung by bees and they die from the allergic reaction they have. So I think along those lines. Uh, the kangaroo story. You know what I first thought of when I, when I when you heard you read this, Richard? Is mm. Steve, and Steve, you know this. We're the, we're the Fogawi. <laughs> Fogawi. <laughs> you know, that, that old, tired joke. Like but you know what I thought ago. of? Um, I know it's your turn, Evan. But what I thought of was uh, when uh, Europeans asked American Indians what they were smoking the Indians replied, tobacco. Now, the Europeans were referring to the weed they were putting in it, but the Indians gave the name of the pipe. Uh, So it was a similar story of a misunderstanding about the question and then the wrong name getting applplied. So history is apparently replete with these sorts Mm -hmm. of examples. That's why I found that. I think there's one for Canada as well, that Canada was supposed to be the name of I don't know where or something like that. So where were we? And um, the fourth one's about the cricket, uh, the, the game of cricket, which mm. uh, is an interesting game. I've never really watched it, but uh, I've heard many people talk of it. And sure, I can see that uh, ball being bowled within a one mile per hour, the fastest fastball ever pitched, which happened this year. I don't know, Richard, if, you, if you're going to allude to that later, but that there was a record set in Major League Baseball this year, the fastest pitch. I believe it was 105 point nine miles per hour something to that effect so um i'll think the kangaroo one is the fiction okay and bob yeah i think uh, uh, most of you guys made some really good points um the tv one yeah i mean it's 
it's not extraordinarily uh, late in '75 uh, to really make me think. Whoa, wait a second. Um, so yeah, I could see I could see that the funnel web spider. I mean, I could have sworn. I mean, I could see a. I thought there was a, a funnel web spider in the, in the states. I could, I could even picture the web. And my first impression would be that they're not um, poisonous, at least not in the United States. And I don't know if there's another funnel web spider in Australia, um, but if, if, uh, if there is one, which I'm sure there is, I'm sure it wouldn't surprise me that, it, that it's pretty poisonous. Maybe they're and the migratory. Fa- <laughs> <laughs> migratory, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, but uh, the hammerhead shark attacks specifically, I mean, yeah, they're, I, they're man-eaters, I, I'm pretty sure. But, yeah, I think that number would be really low. And even if the funnel web spider was not poisonous, I think just allergic reactions of people to the venom would, would uh, exceed the hammerhead shark deaths. So uh, I'm going to say um, – I'm going to say that one is, is science as well. And down to down to four, cricket. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how how, how heavy a, a cricket ball is or the exact way it's pitched, but um, or even its aerodynamics. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I could see it being pitched ex- extremely fast, equivalent to a baseball. I could kind of buy that easily. Um, a cricket which ball leaves is me more with the, dense, I think. It's, slight, it's smaller and more dense, yeah. Anyway. Okay, so that that uh, leaves me with the kangaroo one, and uh, yeah, that that one just strikes me as a, as an urban legend that's been passed along, and uh, and uh, to me, that one is uh, most likely to be fiction. Well, I think most people are, with the exception of Steve, are more or less uh, on the same page here. So let's go for it. Number one, uh, although mainstream professional television was launched in nineteen fifty. Six in Australia, it was not until 1975 that Australian network switched from broadcasting from black and white to colour. That is science. I remember that day very Yay, well. Pray. They had big advertising campaigns. Yes, it was 1975, and suddenly, well, those who had colour TV were lucky enough to see colour TV. And then we saw all the shows that we've been missing for all these years that were previously only in black and white. Number two, the Sydney Funnel Web Spider has been responsible for more deaths in Australia in the past 100 years than deaths from hammerhead sharks worldwide at the same time is science. Hooray. Uh, but the f- yeah. Sydney- well, not yes. really because people died. But- well, yeah, we're not like <laughs> well, cheering on. Yeah, hooray, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there's been a total of 27 recorded deaths in Australia in the last 100 years from spider bites. Uh, 13 of those have been from funnel web spiders. The Sydney funnel web spider is a relatively common spider here found in backyards in Sydney, and it's one of the most venomous spiders in the world. But hey, you just learn to live with it. Um, uh-huh. And according to international... Or die with it. Or die with it. Can't, can't wait to see my first funnel. <laughs> yes, right. They, they, found them, they can be found in pools, actually. People go swimming in their backyard pools, and the spider comes up beside them. That's, that's true. The thing that's creepy about those spiders is... Um, if I'm remembering correctly, that they have like a red underbelly and it looks like the spiders actually look like they recently drank blood. Uh, that's – I don't think the funnel web has a red underbelly. Uh, we have a black uh, – a red black – a red back spider. With a, it's like a black widow spider. Anyway, the funnel web spider is a deadly spider. lives in Australia, lives in Sydney, but it hasn't killed anybody for a while yet. So you can just oh, that's good. relax. Although the hammerhead shark, I think, has only been responsible for at least one known fatality since 1580. Even though it has, wow. had, it has attacked people occasionally, uh, it's certainly not responsible for fatalities as far as we can tell. So if you see one, swim like hell, but you might be lucky if it attacks you. 
All right, number three, when Europeans uh, first saw the kangaroo and they said, what, what the hell is that? And the reply, kangaroo, meaning I don't understand, that is fiction. Yes. Okay. Steve, you really suck at this game. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I will, I will point out that wallaby does mean bugger off in Aboriginal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. It's a common myth. Uh, what does that mean in American? I wonder. <laughs> it's a common myth. <laughs> Um, but journals, uh, Rebecca was right, actually. There was a linguist, uh, a linguist who actually debunked that myth who was studying Aboriginal languages. And even in the journals of Joseph, Sir Joseph Banks, who was a naturalist uh, with Captain Cook, who explored the east coast of Australia, refers to the animal in the local languages as kangaroo or kangaroo. Hmm. So that was oh. um, uh, fiction, which means that the cricket... Yes. I would I would just like to give a shout out to Cecil Adams of the Straight Dope. I believe that is where I learned that. That is all. Cool. Hey Cecil. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Which means so what's the cricket one? The cricket. Yes. Uh, the fastest. Uh, well, my information when I was researching this had the fastest uh, pitch at uh, one hundred point nine miles an hour. That you say that's now been slightly bettered. Yeah, um, I'll see if I can find it. Nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, that was in within one mile of the fastest cricket ball uh, ever bowled, which it was uh, 100.4 miles per hour. So even though the the two styles are vastly different and the balls are different, the speed that they can obtain the, the, uh, in the fastest form of uh, bowling or pitching is uh, equivalent. Which surprised me when I was researching that. I would have sworn that cricket balls would have been much faster owing to the uh, huge run-up that uh, fast bowlers do. But you'll be able to see lots of cricket here in Australia. Richard, is a cricket ball, does it have a, um, anything to grip on the outside like laces, like a baseball? Yeah, it's, it's got, wings it's got wings. It's got stitching. Uh, in fact, some of our best bowlers are called spin bowlers. When they, they live, the, deliver the ball a lot slower... But when it flies through the air, it, it can swing and spin. And when it hits the ground before the batsman um, tries to hit it, it can actually turn and spin a, a, a great deal. So there's great skill involved in um, bowling a cricket ball. Oh, wow. Oh, good job. So uh, congratulations to everyone except Steve. Right. <laughs> well, you made me go first. Well done for stumping Steve. Not really a difficult know. thing, but well, I you know why Bob says crap every time he has to well, go first. I hope I, I hoped I stumped some of the Australian listeners. That would have been good. Yeah. Huh. So, Richard, were you guys like all pissed off in Australia without the color TV because you knew it existed, right? Um. <laughs> yes. To be frank, we were because I, you, yeah. you were definitely a young boy at the time. I was a young boy, but I certainly was, knew, knew that color yeah. TV was available elsewhere, and in fact. I remember my family went to the local town hall one day in must have been 1973 or 1974 because they had a color television and people could come in and look at it. Mm. Wow. wow. Hey, Richard. Cool. Uh, Richard, uh, do you, uh, you know we've got HD TVs over here now, right? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Japan gets things before we do. Oh, oh yeah. That's true. In Japan, like, oh, those Americans, they won't get this technology for They're five or ten years. Five, yeah, like, right five now, to ten years. The, the Japanese have human-like robots. And we don't have <laughs> it's true. You're laughing. It's They're true. already making, like, pornography about the human robots oh, that we man. haven't even seen. Yet. Go, guys, <laughs> guys, really? go, go for that. Go to geekology.com. It was the most incredible robot I've ever seen. It was I, I actually had to really look hard to figure out if it was a, a person pretending to be a robot. It That's was creepy. incredible mm. and creepy. 
Just goes to show you, you know, we can take any topic and turn it into Japanese robots. <laughs> <laughs> Japanese <laughs> robot porn, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. In, in like three seconds. Uh, we didn't even, <laughs> I don't even know how we did that. Richard, I want you to know, I'm so freaking excited about this trip and, and you know, it's all because of you. I mean, you. This was your idea. Uh, well, you're the guy. I, I well, I'm certainly. I think I remember thinking about it a while ago. Um, but it's believe me, it's a big effort by a lot of people here, and um, we're working very hard. In fact, after I've finished with you guys, I got to go grab my laptop, head downtown, find a quiet spot, and work for for hours on more Tam stuff. There you go. Well, get to it. But- yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we're enjoying it right now. I'm sure. I hope you are. You better be. Jay, do you have, do you have a quote to close close us out this week? I have a quote. I have a quote here from a listener from Sydney, Australia, named Warwick Hook. And awesome uh, name. Is he a captain? <laughs> I, picked, I picked this quote specifically because Richard was going to be on the show, and uh-huh. we're like having t- you know Tam Oz fever right now, and all I do is think about Australia. So I had to pick this, and this is a very, very good quote by Bertrand Russell. And the quote is, Truth is a shining goddess, always veiled, always distant, never wholly approachable, but worthy of all the devotion of which the human spirit is capable. Bertrand Russell! That is a good quote. That's a good quote. It's very poetic, but it definitely says it. Little known fact, Bertrand Russell never actually wrote anything. He just sat down and said uh, quotable things. (laughs) <laughs> Other people wrote it down. Hey, Richard, do you know Warwick? Uh, oh, sure. He lives in Australia. I must know him. Well, I mean, he is in Sydney. You know, I'm not really going for a stretch here, am I? He's a, he's a skeptic in Sydney. That's not a good um, stretch. I don't yeah. work. You know what? I, you know. I would be embarrassed to say probably I might, simply because he might be one of the guys who comes to skeptics in the pub or something. But I'm terrible with names and faces. So, Warwick, if you're listening, uh, Hi. Good Uh, good recovery. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Richard. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, uh, for joining me this week. Thank you. Thank Thank you. You're welcome. Awesome to hear your voice, Richard. We'll be with you and see you soon. It's all confusing, I know, because this show is not. We will have seen you soon, Richard. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It was nice to see you soon. (laughs) And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.